0: It's a testimony that what we've been talking about, that it is the power that confirms the word. And that's exactly what God did there. We worshipped we worshiped as a weapon against the enemy, and that cancer was gone. It was on a Tuesday. It was on a Tuesday, and the prognosis was not good for Jamie. But that's okay, because Thursday was coming. You know those Tuesdays, you know those those days where you come across these, these things that are too big for me, items in life. When you need something that is so so much very bigger than that thing that is too big. For Jamie and Jeremy, that thing that was so much bigger than the thing that was too big was Almighty God. And Almighty God prayed, they prayed to Almighty God, and Almighty God, the God of creation, he showed up. He did the impossible. He showed up and and met their point of need. And what we're going to talk about tonight, guys, is not so much just what God did. Because that's one example of many we can give tonight. <laughs> we're going to talk about why God did it. July 8th, 1741, it's in the city of Enfield, Connecticut, way back there, during this time when they were calling the, the Great Awakening. And there was this famous preacher for his time named Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards went to this city for one reason. He went to this little church there because they weren't waking up in the Great Awakening. And they needed a jolt. And he preached a sermon that became famous for its time and it's probably one of the most famous or maybe infamous sermons of all time at least in modern history and it was entitled sinners in the hand of an angry god that sound like fun here let me give you an excerpt of what that was edward said the bow of god's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice spins the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure Of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps that arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Holy cow. Holy cow. Is that the way it is? Is that what God is like? To some, He's angry. He's vengeful. He's distant. He's uncaring. He doesn't get it. And to the others on the other end, he's basically Santa Claus. And the rest of us are somewhere in between. Since the Garden of Eden, the enemy, Satan, has been pushing a certain picture of God. And so let's take a look at what Satan says about God. Scene number one, it's the Garden of Eden. And guys, it's awesome. Everything you can imagine is there. You've got the the fruit. You've got got the vegetables. You've got what you need to eat. You've got everything you need for sustenance. The weather is perfect. Everything is awesome. And God has taken Adam and Eve through there and says, you can have it all. It's all there for you. Every bit of this tree, every bit of this garden is here for you, except for one. That one over there you can't touch. Don't, don't Don't eat of it. Don't even touch it. Don't approach it. Why, God? Well, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that, one, that one's off limits. If you eat of that, you're going to die. Okay, we got it, God. We're not going to touch that one. We're not going to eat it. We're going to stay away from that one. A little bit later, Eve is strolling through the garden, and she's walking around. And she's coming to the vicinity of this tree they can't touch, and there's this serpent that shows up that's possessed by Satan. Now, you know there's a problem when a snake stops, t- starts talking to you. And Satan st- starts talking to Eve and says, has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That's the first step. Has God indeed said? Now, that's King James' version of, you've got to be kidding me. All of these trees, everything out here is, is there. You can eat of all this. What's the difference between this tree and that tree? They're just trees, right? you got to be kidding me. Why? That doesn't make sense. It's not rational. Think about it. All the garden, the entire thing here. Maybe when you first got here, that's okay because God, you were trying, and we're trying to figure things out together, the relationship. But no, you've been here a while now. That doesn't matter anymore. Maybe wh- Why would you not have this tree to eat? And that's what he does today. God has told us through his word many things. Many things about what his standards are for our life. But today it's, we well, you know, sex, the rules about sex and God. That, that was then. Nowadays it's not the same. Premarital sex. Or how what marriage is or how you want to. What, whether you, should, you need, need to be married or, or, or when it comes to your, your, um, your business dealings and honesty. And, and the whole list goes on. And you hear this voice in your head that says, are you kidding me? Everyone else is doing it. In fact, they're not only doing it, but they're getting away with it. They're prospering while they're doing it. Why, why do you still not do this? Because God said, if we do, we'll die. Really, has God indeed said that? So what Satan wants to do is he wants to find a way to fill the vacuum of God's no with three things what your flesh craves what your eyes want and what makes you feel important your pride first John 2 16 tells us this if my kids were growing up I would always always try to explain my directives clearly um, you don't cross the road without looking both ways. Why? Because you'll die. I would try to explain those things, but invariably, no matter what I said to do or not to do, there was this question that came up that said, "Why, Dad?" Sometimes they just had a legitimate question. You know, they didn't understand. Sometimes it was rebellion. Why would we? Why everybody else is doing it? So I would give these directions, and there were there were sometimes. When they would say, why, one too many times. And I would, I would look at them and go, because there's air. And that was translated, they figured out that meant, because I'm your dad. Because I said so. Real obedience to God is found when we're coming into the because there's air moments. Because God said so moments. It doesn't take much to obey God when you see what is, what's in it for you, does it? When it comes to obeying God, What's important is, are you doing it because he said so? If Satan can get us to put our reason on this throne and take God off of this throne, if he can get us to do this, he's going to win. He's going to win in your life. He's going to get you to start waffling about what God says. God says, all have sinned. But we say, but I'm a good person. God says, guys, don't ogle the ladies. We say, but I'm only human. God says, don't be a glutton. And we say, but it's Thanksgiving. Gents, we put our reason on the throne that opposes what God says. We're going to fail. And the old sage, Bob Dylan, had it right. You're going to have to serve somebody. It's either going to be God or the devil, but you're going to have to serve. Somebody, God makes that choice clear. We know what Satan says about God. God says, here, let me proclaim my power. Satan's going to ridicule that power. He's going to ridicule that authority. Let me tell you about me. What he says about Satan was, dude, I'm on my throne. You try to take it in heaven, and I cast you out. I was there. I threw you out of heaven when you tried the first time. And by the time revelation comes along, we find out just how bad it's going to be for Satan. God is saying to Satan, dude, you are already the defeated one. And Satan's trying to tell us that he is the one in charge, that he knows better than God, and take God off this throne. God says about himself, my words matter. What I say, I mean, and it will happen. That's in in Isaiah 55. He says in Matthew 28, all power has been given to me, in heaven and on earth. He says in Colossians 1, I am the only reason. Hear me on this. I am the only reason that the entire universe does not explode. He says he holds it all together. In Genesis, we see him time after time saying, God said, God said, God said. And he spoke creation into existence. In Jeremiah, he says, nothing is too hard for me. He's on the throne. And that's why, because Joshua's God was on the throne, the sun stood still for 24 hours. That's why when Lashia's God was on the throne, he single-handedly captured an entire nation. When David's God was on the throne, Goliath died. Why should we obey God when we don't understand? Sometimes because there's error. He's God. We're not. And so you say, okay, Doug, I get it. God's on the throne. He's God. But that's a problem. Because if that's true, and he's the God of all creation, why would he even notice me? Why would he even care about anything I need or want or desire? Why would he even have any, want to have any kind of relationship with me? He's God. I'm not. Why would he care that I have a tumor? Why would I even approach God with my needs? And we're not the only ones who might think that. David said the same thing in Psalm chapter 8. He says, when I consider your heavens, talking to God, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained... What is man that you're mindful of him? That is a legitimate question. And honestly, guys, right now, let me challenge you. If you're not already thinking that right now, if you don't understand the majesty and the creative power of God Almighty and have not at some time wondered why would he even think of me, then you don't understand God. There's a story told of of a young boy and it's a fire. And the house is a two-story house, and, and he's, he's in the window of the second story right under the gable there, and there's smoke building everywhere, and the, and the flames are coming up to the second story, and he's going to die. If something doesn't change, he's going to burn alive. And he's looking up through the smoke, and he's crying for help, and down there he hears his father say, jump, I'll catch you. And the little boy says, but, but daddy, I, I can't see you. He says, that's okay, I can see you. At that, boy, at that point, that little boy has to make a choice. Now imagine if you're that little boy, you're thinking, I know my daddy's strong. I know he can leap tall buildings with a single bound. He can outrun a locomotive and everything Superman can do because my daddy's Superman. I know that. He can think about the, the strength of his father. But he also thinks, but you know, I wonder if dad remembers that I drew that picture on the wall this morning. Or... Or later that day, he found the the tools in the backyard that I left out overnight. Now they're all rusted and ruined. I wonder if he remembers that. Maybe he won't catch me. Or, or, Or maybe, what if Daddy knows that I'm the one who started the fire? See, if all that little boy has is confidence in his Daddy's strength, can he jump? That's a question where Satan loves to dance. And he dances there often. And he moves into the second level of his accusation to God. In scene two, in the same conversation, Eve answers Satan. And Eve says to him, well, God said if we eat of this, we're going to die. Satan amps up ups the ante at this point. And he says, you're not going to die. He calls God a liar. He said God told you you're gonna die you're not gonna die and he goes "Well, God said no we're gonna die no you're not here's why God told you that here's why God lied to you here's why you can't trust God here's why God is the bad guy in this story because see God's unclear you did, you misunderstood him but I'm very clear so Satan says so listen to me or he says God's the liar but don't worry I got you back I'll tell you the truth or he says God is angry and unapproachable. You could never be good enough for him, and we've all heard that from Satan. Or finally, he'll say, but what does God care? He's not even in the garden right now. He's distant. He's uncaring. He'll never really love you. But that's what Satan says about God, but let's see how God responds. What God says about Satan? Number one. Satan's creative. I didn't think so for a long time. I figured that God was the only creator. He's the only one who created anything. And Satan, he just mimicked God. But I just, res- I just discovered in studying for this message that Satan is also creative. Because it says, God says in John chapter 8 verse 44 that Satan is the father of lies. In fact, he basically says that when Satan's mouth is moving, he's lying. That's all, that's his that is his natural language is to lie before Satan there was no such thing as a lie because God cannot lie and so Satan is the one when he's saying God's unclear listen to me he's lying when he's saying God is a liar I'm not he's lying when he says God is angry I'm not he's lying when he says God is distant and uncaring he is lying but what's God say about himself? There's a whole lot of ways we can look at this, but I just wanted tonight to look at a few names that God gave himself that gives you a feel for his character. This guy that's on the throne is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord that provides. He's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals you. He's Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. He's Jehovah Ra, he is the Lord our shepherd. In other words, he's not only on the throne, he's good. He's good. He's not looking for a way to pull back that arrow and wanting to kill you. He's good. But to be truly good, you must also be consistently just. Another name for God, Jehovah Sid, Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. See, among those characteristics of God is he is the standard for perfection. He is the standard of justice. He is the standard of purity. He is so good, he cannot have anything tainted or bad in him. First Peter says, who committed no sin, was, nor was deceit found in his mouth. It was a purity that he would not and will not pollute. He is on the throne, and he is good, and he cannot countenance anything but purity. And that's a problem. Because when we embrace anything but God, when we embrace Satan, when we embrace a way that God does not approve of, it causes separation. God didn't go anywhere. He's still on the throne. We moved away from him. And that's what happened here. In Genesis 3, we find out that God had to send Adam and Eve out of the garden. He had to create a separation because that's what choosing Satan does. And that leaves us with a problem. The God that's on the throne is good and is good as a God that we cannot reach. But there's one more thing. God's on the throne. God is good. And here's the good part, guys. If we stop there, we're in trouble. God loves you. Scene three Satan is making his case against God. He tries his third shot. Why did God lie to me? Eve would say. And God says in verse 5 of chapter 3, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. If you buy the deal that God's on the throne and that he's good, the only thing Satan has left to attack is God's character. His, his motive for what he does. So what Satan's going to say is, he said, excuse me. The real reason God doesn't want you to eat of that tree or follow these rules or, or, or do what he says to do, the real reason is because he's selfish. He wants to keep the good stuff for himself. He wants to keep you and me ignorant of, of things so that we can be his slaves. Or, or basically, this is the one that really gets me that he said, God's afraid of the competition. If we know good and evil, he told Eve, then we will be like God. Everything about Satan's war effort against us hinges on on you and me believing that God doesn't love you. And how many times do you hear that in your mind? We've talked about this many times through a man to man. How you feel God's calling you to do something and the next thing you hear is, who do you think you are? Don't you remember when you did this? Don't you remember when you did this? Who do you think you are? And what do we learn to say back to him? Who do you think you are? I am a child of the Most High God. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God's favor surrounds me. Who do you think you are? We learn to understand that Satan is trying to tell us things about God that are not true. So what is true? You all know the verse. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Let's stop there for a second. This God that's on the throne, who is a good God but just, who cannot countenance imperfection, he cannot have that. He cannot be polluted with anything that's not pure, loved you and me. It didn't say he just got loved. It said he so loved. It was a, a measure of love that was beyond just, yeah, I like you a lot. He's loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. Now, we, we, we rehearse that verse and, and say that verse over and over and over again. It's, it's, it's one of the ones that most people know. But do you understand what that is? When God says, I love you so much that you're in, a, you're in a pickle because you have walked away, you've listened to Satan, and now there's this curse that's in place that started in Genesis chapter 3. What are you going to do to get out of that? Oh, by the, oh, nothing. Because I won't count as impurity. So God said, I guess I better do something because I love you and I can't accept you being away. He gave us Jesus. Now think about what Jesus did. He gave his only begotten son. That means that Jesus was at the right hand of God who left that to came here, come here. He was heavenly. He became mortal. And he was crucified. Near the other end of the book of John, it's moving up through the whole process of, of Judah, um death. Uh, uh, betraying Jesus and he moved all the way through the trials and the scourges and it's, it's, it's moving all up to this point in the story and all it is is four words and they crucified him and I've often looked at that when you think about it gentlemen that's the biggest part of the story but I can just imagine John who saw the crucifixion could not write more the trauma of seeing jesus on that cross understanding what happened to him when by the time he got to the cross now mind you the son of god who was at the right hand of god who left heaven became mortal because we needed him to save us this is what he went through and he by the time he's on the cross you can take his back and pull it apart like venetian blinds to see his organs By the time he's on the cross, he's lost most of his blood. By the time he's on the cross, the the crown of thorns with the three-inch thorns on his head are down in two, between the skin and the skull. By the time he's on the cross, he's barely alive already. And he didn't deserve it. He paid the price. Then he gets to the cross. And they pull both arms, and they typically pull them out of joint. Do that for all the prisoners because they don't want you fighting you. And then they take the first nail and drive it in through here into the cross. Then they take the second nail and drive it in through here into the cross. He didn't deserve this, but he loved us. And he willingly gave himself up for this. As they took that third nail, they crossed the feet and drive it in through into the cross. You go through the whole story of everything he went through after those four words, and they crucified him. And Jesus gets to the end, and here's the victory. Here's where it changed. Here's where everything that happened in Genesis chapter 3 got fixed, where Jesus said, it is finished. That phrase was an accountancy phrase. It simply means paid in full. See, what happened was is that we created a debt in the garden. We, as, as human beings, created a debt in the garden that we could not pay. And God set in motion from that moment to that moment where Jesus said it's finished a plan to pay the debt for us. If you look through the Bible, you see the word mercy in the Old Testament. You see that word as it moves through the Bible. It starts out with the word, it's a Hebrew word called hesed. And that Hebrew word hesed means I will keep my part of the bargain, and I will then help you keep yours. When you see the word mercy in both the Old and New Testament, that's what God is saying to you and me, and that's what he did. He kept his part of the bargain. He stayed on the throne, didn't he not? He stayed good, did he not? He stayed pure, did he not? But he paid the price for us on this cross. He kept his part, and he helped us keep ours. How far did he go with this? Romans 5.8 tells us a really interesting story. It says, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, many of us know that verse. And it's a great verse, isn't it? While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'd like for you to put your sectified imaginations in order right now. Just kind of imagine. Think about the fact that the last thing the enemy wanted Jesus to do was die on that, die on that cross. That was the last thing. Now, let me take that back. Maybe it was okay for him to die, but he had to quit first. He had to sin first. Because if he died as Jesus, the, the, the pure one, the one who had never sinned, who's no, who's, there's no lie in his mouth. If he died as one who could be the sacrificial lamb, the enemy is toast and he knows it. And so he's going to do everything he can to keep Jesus from dying and finishing the mission. So he tries it. He starts out with the people who are down on the ground up there adjuring. And what do they say to him? If you're really the, the son of God, come down from that cross. You saved others, why not save yourself? They are trying to get him to come down. Jesus himself said, I, I, I don't have to do this. I, ha- I can call 12 legions of angels. What's that? 72,000 angels right now to come rescue me. I don't have to do this. I choose to do this. But think where this may have gone. This is where the imagination might come in. Satan's going, well, this isn't working. These people down here, he's not listening to them. He's still up on the cross. He looks like he's going to finish his mission. i got to try something else. So what did he do? He took a picture of Duck McAllister put him right there in Jesus' face. It said, look what Doug's going to do in 1985. Look what Doug's going to do in 1990. What, du- You're going to die for Doug? Well, oh, that didn't work. gets Gary Martin up there. He says, puts Gary's face in there and says, look what Gary did here. Look what Gary did here. Look what- You're going to die for Gary? Or Tim? Or Mike? Or you put your name in there. And I, I, in my sanctified imagination, I can imagine that the enemy in that time Jesus was on the cross put our faces in front of him and said, why would you die for them? You're doing all of this, and this is what they're going to do. Jesus finished the job. It is finished. What's the effect of that? Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son He didn't even spare his own son. He loved us so much. But delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us some things? A few things? No. All things. God gave up his son for you and me. That's what that love did. Anything else we need is peanuts compared to that. Things that we think are huge, those bigger-than-us things, are nothing compared to what he did on the cross. Anything else for the God who cannot fail, for the God that nothing is too hard, anything else is peanuts. We call those right here, we call those promises. But Jesus' death, re- death and resurrection, our loving God promised that we can now be children of the Most High God. We can now be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He promised that his favor can now surround us like a shield. He promised that his sacrifice has now redeemed us from both sin and disease. He promises that we can now have life more abundantly than we could ever imagine. He promised that the same power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. He's promised that no weapon formed against us can stand. And he's promised that because of that, we are now not just, well, we win every now and then. We can be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Because of that, he's promised. And gentlemen, hear me on this. When you think of the giants in your life, when you think of what you're dealing with in your marriages and your health and your jobs and everything you can imagine, here's the promise that we can place our boots on the neck of the enemy and we can twist with prejudice because God. Is faithful, And he did this to prove it. So what's that mean? That means the defeated one cannot have your family. The defeated one cannot have your marriage. The defeated one cannot have your health. He cannot have your finances. The defeated one cannot have your destiny. If you would only but trust the God that's on the throne, is good, and loves you. He can't have anything that you want. Those aren't just my words. These are the promises of Almighty God. That is good and love us so much. He sacrificed His only Son. Around here, we hold our Bibles up and say, "These are the promises of God." I am what they say I am. I can have what they say I can have. I can do what these promises say I can do. And because we believe these promises, we stand in our gates boldly and we confess that the mountains are going to move, the giants are going to fall, and the worlds around us do not have to stay the same. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to have a life like that? Remember the little boy? He's in the house. The flames are looking at his feet. He's up there in the window looking out from the gable. He hears his daddy saying, jump, I'll catch you. Daddy, I can't see you. The smoke's too thick. That's okay, I can see you. We all know the boy jumped. We all know he did. Even though he started the fire, even though he marked up the wall, even though he ruined the tools, or any number of things that you can think of that little boys do, we know that when his daddy said, I will catch you, he jumped. Why? Because of his strength? No, because his daddy jumped loves him. And he knew that that love was going to be what it was that would direct that strength. A powerless God is an impotent fraud. Ignore him. A powerful God that's not good is just a tyrant. Oppose him. A powerful, just God without love is an enemy attack him the gentleman a powerful just God that loves is a price pain sin forgiving power infusing Jesus that needs to be embraced Jesus said can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she is born then he says well okay so she may forget But Jesus says, I won't forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And he stretched out those hands and those arms and was crucified on the cross. And when he did that, he bridged the gap between us and God so that now amazing things could happen. That's the God Jamie and Jeremy called on. That tumor was a documented fact. They knew how big it was. Jamie and Jeremy a God that was merely powerful and good but unapproachable wasn't enough they needed the all powerful good God that loved them so much that sacrificed everything and that's who they called on and on Tuesday the tumor was in her stomach but it was Tuesday Thursday was coming and the all powerful good and loving God showed up it may be your version of Tuesday right now in your life where you need something bigger than what's going on. Your thirsty can come. Your thirsty is right around the corner if you take on a God who's on the throne who's good and loves you. In fact, guys, if God's on the throne, why would you settle for a puny God, a powerless life? If, if God is good, why would you settle for a fickle, unpredictable un, uh, God that, that with, an, with an aimless life or if God loves you, why would you settle for anything less than a father that longs to give you an abundant life? Jonathan Edwards was wrong. In his sermon, Sinners of the Hands of an Angry God, he says God with a bow and arrow, aimed at your heart, anxious to kill you. And he said, it's just there's nothing holding that back except the pleasure of an angry God. Holy You know what holds that arrow back? The love of God for you and me. It's His will. It is His will that none would perish, but everyone would come to know Jesus. And that's why Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3 Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. So, my question for all of you tonight is this Who's on the throne of your life? Is it your reason? or is it God is it the enemy or is it God is it God the victorious one or is it Satan the defeated one it's one or the other because we can't be good enough to be a third option tonight in this room we have guys some of you in here who are hearing this message are being convicted you know God but you don't have him on the throne of your life you've got something else there and you know you need to repent. We're going to give you that opportunity to do that tonight. We're going to come alongside you and pray with you. The power of God will come into your life in such a way that you would be able to take on everything God wants to give you because he loves you. And there may be folks here tonight as well who don't really know Jesus. You don't know what he has to offer. You didn't know that. You didn't know any of this. To so you, it was a cathedral or a church building or, or a religion or, or, or something that people used to get. that's not archaic. That's what you thought it was. And somehow you got here because a friend invited you and now you've heard this for the first time. And I'm telling you right now, I am telling you right now that, that you are here to be introduced to Jesus Christ because he went to the cross to meet you. And we're going to sing a song here in a moment. Those of you who've been along with me through, the, through this journey of man-to-man, understand what's about to happen. We look at worship as a weapon. We look at worship as a weapon. We see this as that uh, where, where, where it says in Scripture that the, when God's praise is there, Satan cannot be. He inhabits his praise. He inhabits the praise of his people. Satan can't occupy that space that God occupies. And so right now, just like we did that, that Tuesday night in October, and Jeremy was right out there where you guys are right now. And he, he, he worshipped in, in, as, in, as an act of war over his wife in that tumor. We're going to do this right now. where We're going to move into this time of worship. And what I want you to do is this. Pick the giant. And kick Satan out of it. If you need to repent, now's the time. If you need to meet Jesus we're here to help you do that. Let's be standing.